but the the 10 day mark was uh, my daughter Katie's 12th birthday and um, we had the whole birthday and at the end of the birthday my dad and my husband uh, brought us into a room my sister Kim and I in a room she's a year older than I am and uh, and told us that our mother's body had been found in Mexico and that two family members needed to go to Mexico to uh, identify her body in the morgue and that was a whole another you know bite of of reality right there and that was life will not I knew in my gut will never be the same going and um, going across the border and doing what we needed to do would would change me as a person and and I wasn't sure it was going to be in a good way I wasn't sure how it was going to change me but I knew I would change hello friend I'm so grateful that you're here you're listening to Your Spin Out is Gorgeous, a podcast of communion, a place where we connect within the full spectrum of humanity. My name is Natalie Q, and I'm your host. I'm a mother, a lover, a friend, and your fellow human. What I want to offer you is liberation from the cultural foists, the narratives that are thrust upon us and guide much of our experience here on the planet. I'm with you on your journey of unlearning. What if everyone you knew was pursuing a life of whole self-integration, witnessing and offering thanks for all that they are, warts and all? That's not just self-care, that's true, unconditional self-love. And I want to be there with you as you set your life and all the things that aren't serving you alight. With you as you bravely consider life from another perspective. Let's explore all things humanity without the veneer, together. Life examined, not just the pretty parts. You in? Let's do this. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. Today, my guest is fascinating. Her name is Lori Taylor, and you would have heard her voice introducing the start of the show with her um, just very powerful clip that intimated a little bit of what we're going to get into today. But this is a trigger warning as a preface to the episode. If you are triggered by the topics of murder, suicide, violence, um, we are going to cover mental health um, extensively in this episode. And while this episode is so for you, and I hope you can stay and join us, I just do want to offer that if those topics are triggering, that you might want to tune out now and rejoin us next week. But um Yes, Lori has written a book called The Accidental Truth, and I met Lori at a writer's retreat about four years ago and recorded, was so lucky to record this episode three and a half years ago, more on that coming later, um, in her home in Orange County. And Lori's story begins when her mother was found murdered, um, a, a naked, beaten, battered across the Mexican border. And for four years, this was a murder investigation. But as um, time went on, they discovered that this was actually not a murder. It was a suicide. Um, Lori's mother had actually taken her own life, sadly. And sort of the story that you can find within Lori's book about that, and it might be important to let you in on that a little bit here because we don't cover a lot of it within the interview, is that Lori's mom, um, being found in that state, uh, she what had happened is she'd slit her, she tried to slit her own wrists and didn't slit them um, properly. And so 
as she slowly, slowly, slowly began to bleed out, she had the sense, as you do in this case, that she was overheating. She's actually freezing to death, but the body feels like it's overheating. So she had actually taken off her own clothes. And um, she had also become disoriented and lightheaded. So as she was walking and stumbling and tripping over things, that explained the state in which her body was found, um, looking like it had been murdered quite brutally. But instead, you know, that that is what actually happened physically. And as I said, it took four years to discover that truth. And in the meantime, this was a murder investigation. Somebody has done this to Lori's mom. So I just want you to bring that eye that what this would feel like in those 10 days that she goes missing to when she's found. And then that time to the four years that they think it's there's a murderer out there who has done this, um, what that would have been like to live with and feel like. And where Lori has gone to um, since all of this happened and, and she was able to process it is this beautiful advocacy for mental health and suicide prevention and really um, helping us to understand these topics in a way that we just sadly don't. We, we just aren't taught about these things and there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of assumption. And what I love about Lori's work is that she has a clear vision for the way just the language and the conversations could impact this whole um, human experience for all of us for the better. So I have some other things that I would have wanted to cover in this topic, uh, in this episode, but I don't want to take away from Lori's, but I would love to rejoin next week, talk a little bit about my experience of the podcast being live, um, different reactions of family, what I'm thinking, as well as an explanation for why this interview is three and a half years old and only going live now. Um, But again, don't want to take away from what you're about to hear in my interview with Lori. And thank you so much. Here she is. Tell me about your mother. My mom was a really interesting human being. Um, At times she was larger than life. Her words to me were were magic. Um, We've had a saying in our family about magical thinking, but my mother always told her children that we could be anything that we could imagine that we could be. And when your central caregiver tells you that, you believe them. And I, I believed that. And that is one of the biggest gifts that my mother gave me in her lifetime. Um, a lot of who my mother was, was shaped by her own childhood as we're all shaped by our, by our childhoods. And um, she had a very difficult one, losing a father very, very young, uh, affected her deeply. And uh, being raised by a single mother in that era affected her deeply. And um, these sh- things showed up later in her coping skills, in her own parenting style. And a lot of it was, um, it showed up in invalidation and invalidating of, of feelings. It showed up in um, insecurity that I didn't recognize until I was an adult myself, um, that some of her actions and some of her uh, coping skills came as a result of her own insecurity, which we don't as children ever realize, but as adults looking back, um, I have a lot of compassion and understanding for it's sort of that we don't understand what it's like to be a parent until we are one ourselves. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Isn't that such an interesting journey to go through coming to that awareness and what it means and how it affects that period of our own lives? Absolutely. I, um, we, we spent a lot of time, I think in our childhoods questioning why, why did I get this parent? Why did I get this existence? Why did I get, you know, this as opposed to what they have across the street, which looks really, really good. And, um, I feel like in our advanced years and living on this planet for a while, we get this wisdom and my wisdom really causes me to believe that we get the parents we are intended to get because we are intended to learn these lessons in our lifetime. And I believe that my soul came to my mother because I needed to learn the lessons of this lifetime. And um, I think when we honor that, we actually find our purpose. And I really feel grounded in that way yeah. that I found that through understanding yeah. my mother better. Yeah, absolutely. It says that right on the cover of, my, of your book, um, The Accidental Truth, your beautiful book, What My Mother's Murder Investigation Taught Me About Life. So what did it teach you? Let's go into your journey. Very so sweet. Um, taught me many, many things. And uh, it was quite a transformational process for me. When I began the investigation, the murder investigation for my family, I was at a place in my life where I questioned my value in the world. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I had given up a career, uh, a really viable career in sports marketing, and um, I wouldn't change any of that. I I felt very blessed to stay home with my children. But uh, somewhere along the line, this uh, pact that I'd taken with my husband had been forgotten. And my value to him, because I wasn't bringing home a paycheck, was nothing. And I felt that. And I started to question you know, this value. Then this happens with my mother. My mother goes missing and I am the closest one to the border. I speak Spanish. I'm the youngest of four girls. And logically this responsibility falls in my lap. And I don't really wonder if I'm capable of it because I have this vision that my mother's told me I could be anything that I could be. Um, But I have a huge, huge desire to make my mother proud um, illogical desire to make my dead mother. Yeah. Was proud. it a weight? Was it a weight on you? To uh, have it to was a hundred percent. And it was driven by my guilt. I, in, in the moment that I found out about my mother's death, I believed, I intuited that somehow I would be to blame. So I was pushed by my own guilt and shame over having what would be considered an unresolved relationship with my mother. We hadn't spoken in three months when she went missing and to me, that was the definition of the bad daughter. I had to redeem myself in my own eyes, in other people's eyes. And, and I could only do that by finding the person to blame for her death. Someone other than myself. Yeah. Wow. Talk, talk about um, uh, how that actually feels to feel that weight. Where you really, really believe that. Where you really believe the guilt is on you until you find another home for that guilt. Absolutely. Tell about what that felt like psychologically. It definitely is anxiety producing mm. for sure. So um, some of my physical symptoms during the time I thought were related to what we had been told about my mother's death. We had been told my mother had been beaten and strangled. So I would wake in the night trying to catch my breath. My throat would, I would feel the closing of my throat. I couldn't for the first six months really eat Uh, because I couldn't swallow because of this feeling. And I kept thinking I'm having some sort of sympathetic reaction, not realizing 
that it was the symptoms of anxiety. And, and my anxiety was, was always, always constantly very high and, and amped up. Um, but I assumed, of course, that it had something to do with my mom, that it was me having this sympathetic physical reaction, uh, you know, to her death. Um, in my own shame and guilt, um, it was something that I couldn't share. It was something that I would save for the middle of the night to cry by myself to, to noodle and think about and, and be introspective in the middle of the night because I didn't want my children to see. I didn't want my children to worry about my mental health. I didn't uh, feel safe sharing it really with, with other people so much because then I would be vulnerable about my own guilt and shame, which I had to protect until I could prove that it wasn't my own, it wasn't my fault. How did you function in those years? How did you get up and, and be mom and, and be on for your friends? And, and how did, how does the brave face, how did that work for you? It's, it's a, it's a great question. Um, for my whole life, I wore that mask. I wore the face. I, you, you know, our house was erupting in violence and, and, um, you know, police were coming to, to our door and, the next morning, we as children were expected to march out and make the honor roll and beat your leaders and and talk nicely about what our home looked like. And so I had this training as a kid to put on that face and go. But one of the things that happens when you go through such a deep tragedy, tragedy is you lose the strength for it. So there were times when I could because it was necessity. I'm a mother. I am a mother. This is my this is my duty. Do this do this for my children. Did I always do it? Well, did I always do it at the standard that I wish I would have? No. Was I absent and vacant and emotionally unavailable during that time? A hundred percent. Um, I still harbor (laughs) as much as I've let go of my shame and guilt. I still harbor some shame about that time. I couldn't pretend, but that's a blessing because we're not supposed to pretend we're supposed to be authentic. We're supposed to be able to say in our relationships, I need help. I can't do this by myself. And someone is supposed to step in to help. But if we don't open up and let ourselves be vulnerable and show who we are, they don't know that we need help. So I did some, some pretending. Um, I did some fumbling through um, and that's human and that's okay. Yeah. We'll get back to some more specifics, but I've, I want to talk about what this journey gave you in terms of your understanding of mental health and give voice to the people who are struggling and suffering with this, that you are now, you have gone so deeply to the depths. Sorry, we're both shedding tears <laughs> over here. Um, you've gone so fully to the depths. You, you understand this pain. Can you give voice for people who are, who are struggling with this? That's more of where your journey is taking you now. And we'll get to that. Absolutely. But um, what have you learned? In terms of, uh, of mental health, it's interesting that you use the phraseology, the words give voice for people. I was a person that had lost my own voice. Mm-hmm. I, my value was zero. I, so I did not have a voice in the process of this investigation. I was forced to use a voice for my mother who was dead. She was gone. She didn't have a voice. I was her voice. And in this practice of doing this in demanding answers, you know, from law enforcement, uh, from, you know, government officials, 
I found my voice. I, I was rewarded for that. I was, I, and, and it built, and this was a huge part of my own personal transformation. So writing a book for me was the ultimate expression of finding my voice, putting my voice in paper in terms of using my voice for individuals living with mental health issues. Um, this is what I believe my soul came to learn. And, uh, what I saw on my journey was people who were like me had shame and guilt about their mental health. Here I was, I had gone through this horrific disaster and I was ashamed to ask someone about a therapist to go for help. I was suffering from post-traumatic stress, depression, complicated grief, all of these things that I thought I should just buck up. Somebody who is strong and who, you know, resilient just bucks up. Well, um, it was a lot to expect of myself. Um, it, it was that narrative in my head. Like if I was a stronger individual, I could just walk through this. Thank goodness I had compassionate friends who, who said to me, there's no shame in this. Go speak to a therapist. And I say in the book, I say, you know, I was ashamed because I had avoided therapy for my whole life. But the truth of the matter is, I probably should have been in therapy for my whole life. <laughs> the truth of the matter. So yeah. um, uh, for me, what I realized once I let go of my own shame regarding my own mental health, um, it starts with self-compassion. And then you see others struggling in the same way. And part of my journey is the sharing the story of my friend that remarkably happens two years after I uncover the truth about my mother's death, which is I prove that my mother was not murdered. There was no crime committed. My mother took her own life. Um, we use that expression committed. There was a, you know, a crime against oneself or, or the church. It's no longer used in mental health because it is a misnomer. It, 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 it infers that there is a choice in suicide that is not there. So through this, uh, journey with my friend and watching her suffer a major depressive episode, I saw a person as broken physically because of her injuries from her suicide attempt and emotionally, mentally, as I've ever seen a living human being. And um, <laughs> how can one not have compassion living in that place? What I saw in her eyes what is what I had lived with, shame and guilt. She had had shame and guilt over something that had happened to her. She had suffered a mental illness and her mental illness led her to believe that her only choice was to take her life and um, not a choice in the way she succumbed to her mental illness and she attempted suicide. And only because I had the benefit of this new lens to look through, could I look back at my mother's situation and say something different. When I found out the, the news that my mother had taken her life, I said, what Many people say out loud, oh my gosh, how could she have done this to me, to us, to her grandchildren? How could she have made this choice? In, in looking through the lens of my friend Sue's a suicide attempt, I saw that Sue didn't make a choice. Sue didn't do anything to me. Sue didn't do anything to her own children. It happened to her. And then I could draw the parallel. Oh my God, if it happened to Sue, it happened to my mom. And... That for me, I stepped away from, I am a victim of an act of a choice of a, and it's the most freeing, liberating feeling in the world. And um, I realized that to have two incidents like this in my lifetime were my odd gift that 
to see something like this and really learn from it and hope to educate other people about it, um, about having compassion and empathy first. Shame does not cure cancer. Shame does not cure mental health issues, depression. It does not. Talk to me about the, the coming together of the two sides of suicide, the victims of someone who's how do I say it without saying committed? Correct. So, yeah. so um, taken, died by suicide, right. taken their own Thank life. You. Those are the, the preferred okay. the preferred terms. And Thank you. I hadn't heard that. Can we say that again? Because yes. I think that's going to be really helpful for people. Words are so important, aren't they? So we stop saying things incorrectly. So it's... It's changing the language. And right. I, I tell people... Which changes you know, the perception. Which absolutely so changes the perception and, and the stigma. So we yeah. used to say committed, committed suicide, suicide, which committed means that was a willful act. It was a, it was a choice. So we, yeah. we take that word out of it. Um, succumbed is, is a word that we use, but died by suicide is, is what is used in mental health now. Right. Um, taking their own life. We, we say those, those are the preferred words that we use. It is right. so interesting that you say that about the language of this is so important. No Absolutely. other illness do we make jokes or use language that is, is, um, negative. I'm OCD. She's crazy that they lost their mind. They, we don't make jokes about people with other illnesses. We don't make light. Um, and I, that is something that there needs to be an awareness about, and we need to bring more compassion into the, to the arena. Yeah. So I think I hadn't really thought too deeply. I haven't been, um, affected by suicide by someone even relatively close to me. So I had never thought through that there would be two sort of camps as it were. One is uh, a family and a lost survivor. So the lost survivor has had a friend, a family member take their own life An attempt survivor, someone who has attempted suicide and, and lived. And um, it used to be that apparently these groups were very divided uh, and they were divided because of misinformation. They were divided because of this idea that there was a willful act. A choice was made. And without regard for family, friendships, relationships, for anyone's feelings. And I tell people, you know, people who live with mental health issues suffer from what the experts call perceptual distortion. So their reality is distorted by their illness. So when someone who is living with a non-distorted reality, not distorted by mental illness or addiction or whatever else might, might cause this uh, distortion. Um, for someone to sit and say, I would never make that choice, no matter how bad it got, I would, I would never do that to myself or to my family. I say, well, I understand that in your rational brain, you would not. I validate that feeling abs 100%. But to the person living with a mental health issue, their brain is telling them that the only choice they have, what would be better for everyone else, what would be better for them is to take their own life. So uh, when we try to put our own reality on someone who is living with perceptual distortion, it's not, it's not a fair, um, it's not a fair analysis. It's not a fair um, uh, hypothesis, if you will, um, at all. Because they're not thinking with your brain, with your reality. Mm -hmm. So what we can set, what I tell people is that even beyond mental health, this language of validation 
it crosses over, it can cross in, over into racial issues. It can cross yeah. over in yeah. differences in religion. It can, right? I validate your right to your separate reality. Yeah. What, if it's distorted by race, your, your, how you've lived in your own race and your, what you know, what, yeah, you, what you've uh, encountered. Absolutely. It's come into your sphere. I can't say that didn't happen to you yeah. because your reality has told you that has happened to you. And I validate your right to that. I think in changing language, I tell people language of validation, L-O-V, is love. If we are not validating someone, we are disconnecting from them. If we're validating, we're connecting. And to me, that's the essence of love. Yeah, I I think there's some language I've noticed about it. I've noticed so many times coming from a religious background that people would say, I just can't understand why. I heard that over and over again. I said it myself. One day I woke up to myself and I realized... Every time you say that, you are not even trying to, you don't understand because you have forgotten to try to understand (laughs) what it might possibly look like. You mentioned lenses before. It's looking through another lens. And once you recognize that we all have an individual lens that we are looking through, it is so much easier to be empathetic. And I, it's very, very difficult for me to, to imagine what it is like to look through the lens of someone struggling with mental illness. But at least I will try. And immediately the empathy is there. So that's... It's not always easy. And, that's, no, and I don't yeah. want to paint a picture that it is easy. Mm-hmm. Mental health issues are scary and, and difficult. And um, I don't want to tell anyone how to grieve. I don't want to tell anyone how to react to their own situation. Anger is a natural part of the grieving process. And to try to rob somebody, I would never rob somebody of their feelings because 10 years later, I'm in this different place. I can reflect back. I have uh, this new lens to look through. I have these things. My journey is different than everybody else's journey. If someone can learn something from mine, I'm, I'm thrilled. If I can share something that would be helpful or comforting to them, but I will never judge them for their own journey, whether it include judgment or anger or whatever. That is their, they have the right to their own, their own journey in that, in that way. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Let's go back into some of the specifics of what you, the journey through the book. Tell me about the day. Let's start at the day when everything changes. The first day, because there were there are a couple of changing days here. So, yes, absolutely. There were many. Um, the first day, really, for me, um, I was living a really charmed, really lovely life, a very comfortable life, if you will. Um, not wholly authentic, but really comfortable. And the phone rang, and my eldest sister phoned and asked me a simple question. Have you spoken with mom lately? And I was instantly drenched in guilt. I hadn't. I hadn't spoken to my mom in, in three months. And uh, I felt that pang of, if you were a good daughter, you would have spoken with your mother recently. And Did you, were you embarrassed to admit that to your sister? They wouldn't have known. Your sister wouldn't have known. Uh, it, it probably, yeah, I didn't bring it up for sure that I felt guilt or felt, you know, embarrassment. I, I simply answered the question. Yeah. yeah I, I yeah. simply, no, I haven't. I didn't point out how long it had been. I didn't, oh. Oh. you know, shine a light on that. That was all internal processing. And, mm. you know, at that point, and um, my sister phoned to tell me that my mom had not shown up for her job, that her dogs were left without care, that she had scheduled a meeting that she had never attended. 
and that my sisters were in my mom's hometown or my mom's um, where she was currently living in Vista, which is North San Diego County in California, um, that they were there and they were concerned about for her whereabouts. Did you, did panic immediately set in or were you, was it a slow process of, of sort of sifting through it, wondering yeah. what? It, it was, my mom had had a history in our lifetime of disappearing. So, uh, you know, at various times in our life with really little regard for her family and she was her coping mechanism. I didn't understand it as a kid. I understand it better, you know, as an adult and she would disappear. And for instance, I lived with my 21 year old sister for, you know, part of my freshman year of high school. I lived with friends for part of my sophomore year of high school because my mom was gone my mother and father had divorced. My father was living in Northern California, had a, you know, a, you know, a life of his, his own. And here, you know, we were, and thankfully I had an eldest sister who stepped in and she was very motherly and loving and, and we all just coped. That was our normal. We didn't see it as anything but normal because that's how we lived for forever. So when you ask if it was a slow process or a quick process, it was kind of the, you know, that mental in your brain saying, oh, you know what? Mom's done this before. She'll show up. Mm. Not immediate panic. Mm. No. At that time, where, where would your mom go? What would she do? Where, what was her life like in those disappearing moments? Many times I had no idea. Um, And still don't. Right. Was it appropriate to ask? Mom, where have you been? Absolutely no. not. No, that would be questioning authority. And that would not be our place. If she desired to tell us and desired for us to know, then we would know. But that would have been disrespectful of us to ask. Believe it or not, that would have been in our household. That would have been considered uh, being disrespectful, questioning where she was. Why would I have a right to question where she was? And As a child, you're an adolescent. Uh, it's interesting. So uh, that's a, you bring up a really interesting thing. So uh, perceptual distortion, if we go back to it, my mother had her own reality and children are born pure and they are born with amazing intuition and gut. And what happens when you are constantly invalidated, your care, central caregiver who's living with perceptual distortion says the sky is blue. And you're like, Oh, you know what, mom? No, it's kind of, it's like gray today. There's really, and she looks at you. No, that's not what you see. That's not what you feel. That's not how it is. Then there becomes this separation and that, that divide in her reality and your reality and what you know is the truth causes you to live with pervasive self-doubt. So that little voice in your head, that's like, I see this and I know it's this, but maybe I'm wrong because I was wrong. You know, my central caregiver said I was wrong many times. You don't feel that. Stop crying. You don't, don't act like that. You don't need to act like that. That's not invalidation, invalidation, invalidation. And so we live with this, huh, always questioning ourselves. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong here. And that's what would happen when my mom would disappear. How could I question? How could I? She's my central caregiver. She's right. Accept that in my gut. I always knew there's something not right about your mom being gone for stretches of time without explanation. And were being, you seeing other kids and their moms and their families and how they were and having like a complete cognitive dissonance of what then normal was must've been convoluted it, as you, as it you was, um, it, it was, but I was always reminded that <laughs> and, and always had the attitude. I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, mm-hmm. 
that there was no sense in questioning that existence. And we should be grateful for everything we did have. And I always was grateful because even in the craziest moments when we're living in, you know, the craziest situations, there was joy and there were moments of absolute, you know, perfection. And when I say when she was present, um, there was nothing like it. She was a really, really larger than life woman and captivated by her words. She was really, really bright and self-taught and well-read and interesting. And when she was interested in you, you felt like it was the greatest gift ever because it was pretty rare. Hmm. With all the layers that you've peeled back, with all that you have, at first you were taught that you've now unlearned, which is just as important as the process of what we do learn. It's amazing how you can still have that same gratitude you were instilled with for what was truly precious. And the, the picture that's painted is really, it's just so real, isn't it? It's, it is it is actually real. And um, I think we're not always capable of getting to real until we've lived a bit of space, yeah. right? We've lived it. We have, yeah. we have a little bit of wisdom. And I tell people, um, I am truly grateful for, for my upbringing. I wouldn't be who I am. And, you know, it's that old cheesy thing. I wouldn't be who I am had I not had it. I also tell people that my mother gave me everything I needed through commission or omission. Commission, she actively sat down, taught me, this is how you set goals. This is, you know, the power of positive thinking. This is how you, you know, this is how you accomplish something. She taught me a lot. When she wasn't there, when she was absent, when she would disappear, I found things like my resourcefulness, like my resilience, um, like my positive attitude saying, you're going to be okay, put your shoes on and keep walking. So whether she actively gave it to me or I learned it in her absence, commission or omission, I got the whole package. I got everything I needed from my mom, as we all do. Yeah. Well, I don't don't need to give you any compliments and you're probably going to defer them, but I think so many people miss that. Because what they latch onto, the narrative they latch onto is a victim story. Because in so many ways, we are all victims. We are, things are legitimately wrong in our lives. Things are legitimately, the suck. Things legitimately were directed, you know, taken away from us. Cards didn't go in our favor. When you latch onto those rather than, I love how you've said that, that, that she gave you things in omission. That was you learning the lesson that was provided for you. And they're there. And I know many times in my own life, I have missed it. I'm a victim. I, I get to be victim now. You know, I certainly, I certainly did that myself. Please don't, don't. Misunderstand. And, and I, and I don't want to minimize anybody else's journey. No, absolutely this is my not. understanding of, yeah. of my own journey, because there are things in life that absolutely are nonsensical that we cannot find meaning in. And what I tell people is, you know, that old saying of things happen for a reason. And I always loved it. And I always thought, well, that's really cool. Except for then this really horrific, really devastating thing happened to me. And I thought, how the hell am I going to find a freaking reason for this happening? And I kind of changed it around in retrospect. I look at it and I tell people, it's not that things happen for a reason. It's that Things are going to happen. That's life, right? Um, But it's about finding reason and meaning and purpose 
in these things, right? So um, it, it's not that it's, I, I, I don't believe that bad things happen um, because they were caused by, I think things, things happen. There's free will in life, right? There's things that, you know, if you are, if you believe in God, you call it divine, you call it energy, whatever, whatever you call it. Um, that I think that if we can let go of this happened to me for a reason, that this happened to me for a reason oftentimes leaves us in victimhood, leaves us mm-hmm. in, you know, this, that, that place. Um, what I see is, is for me accepting what is, it happened. I accept it for what it is, has allowed me to, to move forward. If I lived in a place of denial, if I lived in a place of um, not of non-acceptance, I would be trapped in victimhood for forever. So if I accept it, I can leave it in my past and I can move forward to find some meaning and purpose going forward. It's not everybody's work to, from a tragedy, take and do work mm-hmm. in that field. Oftentimes people do. Oftentimes people find peace and comfort there in, in, you know, in doing that work. I do in doing that work in my mom's name, in a, you know, in a compassionate way. That's not everybody's journey. But I think the important part is the acceptance of what is, you know, um, they're gone. That's, it's, it's actually, the, it, to me, it's the final part of the grief. or <laughs> It's the beginning and the end of the grief process in, this, in, in, in accepting it happened and now I'm now now I can move forward. Um, and having closure, having been able to prove that my mother took her own life, not believing that there was some shadow criminal out there, someone lurking around, um, I am most grateful for. It was a really scary way to live, anxiety-producing way to live. Um, this was a really difficult truth to to navigate. And you know, I tell people there was not going to be a parade through town or a lovely party thrown when I found a murderer, when we had a trial, that wasn't going to happen. But the odd thing that happened to our family when I came to them and I said, this is the truth. Mom took her own life was, wow, we can't blame anyone else. Now we feel like accomplices. We didn't know my mother lived with a mental illness. We didn't do anything to stop this. We didn't. And that was prior to my understanding of mental health and how that happened you know, to my mom, but I, you know, I felt that <laughs> I wanted someone else to blame. And now I, now I proved that we were all to blame. I had brought this upon my family. And had- how long did that last that you all lived in that narrative of what could I have done? I'm, I'm sure that has to be the, the common thread between every survivor is the guilt. Yes. Not recognizing something, not being yeah. her help. What could I have done? Yeah. I could have done this. I should have done that. How, Give voice for for those people for how that feels and how you are able to transcend that narrative. Yeah, it, it lasted a, a good amount of time. It's something that you and and for four sisters, being the youngest of the four sisters, it lasted for varying amounts of time. Um, and I think what what changed that narrative is this understanding and education and awareness about what really happened to my mom taking it out of what my mom did, what my mom's choices and, and, and through education and awareness, bringing it to that place of what happened to my mom. And that's a compassionate, merciful, oh my gosh, this happened, this, this happened to her. And that's when I realized there wasn't something I could have done for my mother. It came, it would have come from within my mother. And, um, and that was a very freeing 
place for me. Yes, we need to be there to support and encourage and use positive you know, reinforcement and get help when, when someone is willing to be helped. My mother's condition, borderline personality disorder, one of the characteristics of it is, is not being wholly self-aware. So there's some of the most difficult to treat in mental health situations. Uh, it's if someone isn't convinced that they are ill, how can you get them help? And, and realizing that was a huge um, shining light for me in terms of I might have been able to get my mother help, but I might not have been able to get my mother help. And um, I think that was for me, it, it didn't have anything to do with me. It had to do with an illness. It had to do with, with factors that were out of my control. Was it very your mom to not have asked for that help? not have been vocal in any way. Sue was helpable in that there was, um, it was being spoken about. It was, people were aware of it. Correct. Your mom seems in this case to have been very private, very closed off, very, it was over. It was, it was too late. Absolutely. I, I don't believe my mom ever believed there was anything wrong with her. I don't believe by, and, and honestly, as a family, because it was our normal, we thought we had, my mom was a bit quirky, right? She, for, you know, when, when she wasn't there, that was quirky. When she was there, you know, um, that was just our, that was, that was our normal. So we knew nothing different. My mom asked for help, um, in various ways in her life. She could, she could ask for financial help. She could ask for, um, you know, support in her businesses, et cetera. Um, I'm not sure that she was self-aware enough to, to realize there might've been a mental health issue. I, I don't believe she did actually believe there was a, um, she never spoke it to me or really, I believe anybody in our family. Um, it seemed that there was always a problem with someone else. There was, it was someone else's, someone else's problem. Okay, so a period of time goes on and it's becoming more, you haven't been panicked, but it's becoming more apparent that things are not right. Correct. And that's about 10 days. It was, it was a, a 10 day period. And about day five, when she didn't, when mom didn't show up for work, we all said something is wrong because she'd been very dedicated as much as she could disappear. She was very dedicated to this particular business. She hadn't done anything like that, you know, as far as we knew, you know, in a number of years, it was uncharacteristic for her not to show up for her job. And she loved her animals. We joked as a family, you know, equally as much as she loved her children, sometimes more. (laughs) And uh, and we, we, we would joke they were the most loved, you know, cared for, you know, pets in the world. And she, there was no care for them. And she never left her animals without care. There was a huge, huge red flag for our family. And um, so we decided that we, my sisters decided to go file a missing persons report. The, the, the more we stepped towards real and authentic, the scarier it got. So filing a missing persons report, put it in the, oh no, what if mom comes back? She's going to be furious with us. She's going to, for, for, you know, overstepping for making a big deal out of nothing. You know, what, what were you thinking? Um, but in that moment I thought, well, it's not just me. I won't face it alone. I'll be there with my sisters. We'll all, you know, suffer the wrath of, of stepping and going overboard. Um, by the weekend, by the seven day mark, um, San Diego Sheriff's office, uh, 
basically we had garnered a lot of media attention. Uh, we, my t- sister and I had done some interviews, uh, newspaper, radio, television, you know, asking for people, you know, if they'd spotted my mom's van. And because of that media attention, it was moved. Uh, mom's case was moved early to the homicide division. So then that was one step closer to, holy cow, we'd say the word homicide. Are you kidding? Like what? And all of that anxiety that that brought along about, you know, what we're thinking. And then the the 10 day mark was uh, my daughter, Katie's 12th birthday. And um, we had the whole birthday. And at the end of the birthday, my dad and my husband uh, brought us into a room, my sister, Kim and I in a room, she's a year older than I am. And, uh, and told us that our mother's body had been found in Mexico and that two family members needed to go to Mexico to uh, identify her body in the morgue. And that was a whole nother, you know, bite of, of reality right there. And that was life will not, I knew in my gut will never be the same going and um, going across the border and doing what we needed to do would, would change me as a person. And, and, I wasn't sure it was going to be in a good way. I wasn't sure how it was going to change me, but I knew I would change. It seems like in what I know from you, the journey really brought things in such a painful way. It almost seems to seems odd to make sense of it this way, but it seems to have led you to your truth, led you to your voice that you had lost. I love the beginning of the book where, where you lay out where um, I can't remember the detective's name, but he says it was because we couldn't say no to Lori yeah. that any of this progressed for the number of years it went on. It was very, very kind. He was the sergeant in charge of homicide. And at the time, I didn't know anything about law enforcement. I have no training. My background is not in law enforcement. And uh, we had had to appeal my mother's case to reopen the case. They had closed the case after six months. It was a cold case. And our family was like, you can't possibly close the case. It hasn't been fully investigated. So I spoke on behalf of my sisters in this appeal. And at the time met this new sergeant in charge of homicide. And that day he said to me, you know, call me anytime and ask me questions. And I was shocked to learn that that I could. I had been calling and doing things, but for someone to invite me into that process, and he meant it, which was very rare. It was very outside of the box thinking for traditional law enforcement. He said, I'll tell you, Lori, it actually bothers me more when I don't hear from the victims of families because we have so many cases. The only way that we can, can be on all of them is when we're being pushed in this way. So be the squeaky wheel, which was the antithesis of what we were taught. We were told to, we were sort of taught to, you know, be, you know, in the background and not really, you know, um, causing any trouble, not really causing anybody any discomfort or, you know. And so this was a stepping outside of what I thought my role was as the good child, the good person. I needed to be, I, I needed to be a little bit bad or live outside of the, outside of the constraints, if you will, um, of what I had, of what I had been taught and push this. And fortunate for me, I was rewarded in that process. I was rewarded by law enforcement. I was reported, you know, uh, uh, rewarded by my family and they're, wow, thank you so much for, you know, carrying this burden for our family. We, you know, we're counting on you. And that was a change in roles. Being the youngest, I was, not the voice that people heard. I was the last voice. I was the last one to have a say. I was the last one. And now all of a sudden, this turn of events, and I am the voice of my family. I'm the voice of my mother. And that was helpful in finding 
my own voice and my own truth, you know, for myself. Um, absolutely. The, that was the path for me. We've connected with the most beautiful, amazing people. One of them is a gentleman named Kevin Hines and, uh, he jumped off the golden gate bridge to attempt to take his life and he lived and not many people live from, from that experience and his wisdom and his, um, he's a shining, shining, bright, bright light and, um, finding people who can stand up without shame, tell what happened to them, gives people who are living in that dark space of something's wrong. I don't know how to get out of it. I, this is, I think this is to see those shining lights of hope is so necessary. I hope, my hope <laughs> is that will just by the in droves people will start coming forward and saying I have no shame this is my story I have no shame this is my story and I felt it was really important to include my own chapter on therapy and talk about my own mental health because it has to start with you right I can't ask other people to do what I'm not willing to do myself and be honest and speak my truth about my own my own mental I think it's so beautiful. It it really, really touches me so deeply. It does take so much courage, but it shouldn't. It should start to be the norm. And as much as there's still this judgment and stigma out there that's just as loud, these little beautiful voices are are popping up and owning it. Sue's children, Sue, they're owning it so deeply. There's nothing to be ashamed of. This happened. I claim it. It's my experience. It's mine. Will it help you? Let me share it. How can I help? What can I share? How can we connect? It's, I really see it going that way. And so many people beyond these issues are going to hear that example on whatever their issue is, whatever their aloneness Absolutely. that they're feeling is. And it's it, the ripple effect. This is many people feel like unicorns in their own experience because of shame and guilt and silence and quiet and not using our voices. And Mm -hmm. I told one of the most surprising things for me was I hoped that my book and my experience would be helpful to other people. Very simple things from you can advocate for yourself. You can call the sergeant in charge of homicide to, you know, speaking these really vulnerable, you know, really vulnerable truths. But what came back is, you know, it's that if you give what you need, you always, you always get it back. And I had no idea people, I, it's like giving them a permission slip to speak their truth and they're really thankful for it. And I'm, I'm thankful it's healing in both directions. It, it truly is. It's uh, it's just, it's validating our experiences. Our lived experiences are important. Yeah. How can people connect with you? How can they find you? How can they? My website is www.lori-taylor.com. I'm L-A-U-R-I-Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R. I'm at Lori A. Taylor on internet. uh, I'm sorry, on Instagram and Twitter. And I think that's it. We had a special moment that that meant so much to me to share in your journey and, and your mom's journey to connect to her. We went to a place that was very special to her and sat in nature and enjoyed and just drank in the moment at the Ojai Valley Inn. Yes. Somewhere that she had gone and and we imagined her spending time there. And and it was a really, really beautiful moment of of reverence and 
feeling closeness to you and your journey. And it was lovely and bonding because the minute that I said, we all, we were casually talking about going to lunch. We were talking about where we might go. And I said, well, would you mind? And I told the story and to have three women immediately stand up We're no, we're going there. You know, it was just sisterhood, lovely understanding women who have lived their own devastation, their own experiences, their own difficult truths um, to be so joyous and no, absolutely. Let's, we're going to go drink champagne and toast to your mom. <laughs> um, I, it, for me, it illustrates particularly to people who are in the beginning of their grief process, you will find joy. You will find connection. You will find happiness and comfort in your memories and in, in the love that, that you shared and um, just keep walking. Lori, it's been amazing to have this time to be able to share this with you, be in your home. <laughs> it's, um, it's a privilege to call you a friend. I would say something, but I can't because I'm going to cry. Um, honored to know you and be connected with you, sweetie. And I can't wait to see you take off and watch your star shine. Thank you so much to everyone who's joined us today. Could be in a month or years from now when this was recorded, but we really, really appreciate you taking your time to listen to what we have to say and, and connecting with us and wish you well. Thank you for having me. Take good care. Proof that a great story has no expiration date. A huge thank you to Lori Taylor for joining me on this episode and for the very patient three and a half years before we made this live. Uh, thank you so much, Lori. And I know you've just been waiting by the phone. Kidding. You absolutely have not. You've been out there doing book clubs and bringing at more advocacy um, for mental health and awareness through your book and through your work and your message. So thank you for all that you're doing. And thank you for joining me today. I would love for you to connect with me uh, wherever you can find me. I'm on Instagram. I've got a Facebook page for the podcast. Um, my website is natalieq.com. How about this? Why don't you connect with me on TikTok? I love TikTok. Um, Natalie.q on TikTok. Um, I don't post that often, but I certainly could start. And uh, LinkedIn. How about that? Where all great people that you meet on a dating app and never eventuate anywhere where all conversations um, with those possible future love interests go to die. LinkedIn. Connect with me there. Just kidding. Um, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. Um, right here, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you could certainly connect with me through your five-star review. Um, and I just look forward to next week when we will see you again. Thank you again. Thank you again.